That's why I don't mind doing these things for you. You did things for me, you wouldn't believe you did. Good afternoon and welcome to the council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello, and we've got a great show for you today. Uh, so excited to, uh, to introduce my guest here in just a few moments. I uh, just want to do a quick shout out to our sponsor, REMAX Alliance. REMAX Alliance, if you want to buy a home in Colorado, you want to buy your dream home or sell your home, these are the people to go to. Go to www.homesincolorado.com. That's homesincolorado.com. Uh, these guys are fantastic. I've known them for a very long time. They have integrity. They have character. They want to help you to find your dream home. Go to these guys. Uh, look them up. Tell them I sent you, and uh, they're going to work their butts off for you. Uh, go to www.homesincolorado.com. That's Remax Alliance. Also, I want to offer to all of you who are listening to this uh, from uh, all over the world, uh, I'm, I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, to, to send me your, your, your problems, some of your issues. Uh, I want to be able to help you. I'm giving away a 15-minute free consultation uh, to work with me. I will help you. I'll solve your problems. Put, uh, send to my email at charlespacello.com. That's C-H-A-R-L-E-S. P is in Peter, A-C-E-L-L-O, at gmail.com. Put in the subject line, help me, Charlie. And for 15 minutes, we'll have a free consultation. I will help you to solve your problems. This offer is available until December 25th. So if you're watching this afterwards and this is something that you, uh, you need, uh, this uh, offer is up until Christmas, and uh, you know it's is something that I'm passionate about. We've talked about a lot of different topics on the show, talked about divorce, talked about uh, making better choices, how to make those empowered choices, uh, any kind of trauma issues, anything that I can do to help you to recover and to get back with your life. Please contact me at charlespacello.com, that's C-H-A-R-L-E-S-P-A-C-E-L-L-O, at gmail.com. And in the subject line, help me, Charlie. Today, we are talking about a veteran's homecoming. And, uh, you know, this is one of the most important things that uh, we, we, we sometimes miss uh, as far as veterans coming back from combat or trauma, or, you know, the wars that they've experienced in being able to welcome them back into the community. It is such an important aspect, and they're often left alone to figure out how to do it themselves. And one of the organizations that I work with and that Roger, uh, Dr. Brooke with me, uh, he was the president of the organization, Soldier's Heart, is that we try to help our veterans who haven't been able to make that journey home to come back home again. And one of the things with, about a veteran's homecoming is we're going to be transformed by these experiences. And we've got to look at people in our, in our history who've been able to successfully make that transition, that, that transition from being uh, a servant of Ares, uh, which is a servant of the god of war, to a servant of Athena, which is the one who protects and shields and only uses war as a last result. But I want to point someone out to you that I think really exemplifies um, someone who experienced war and made a profound contribution to the world uh, and to how he was able to make his war wounds and turn it into something good. And that was uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Francis of Assisi was born in Italy in 1182 uh, to Pietro de Bernadone and uh, Lady Pica. His mother was a beautiful woman from the south of France. And young Francis, he lived a life of luxury. He had everything. You know, he was spoiled, he indulged in lavish parties, he drank lots of wine, he serenaded young girls that night, he merrily passed his days in excess and debauchery. And Francis was a natural leader. People followed him. And he loved to sing and he loved to tell jokes. And he was robust and he was life-affirming in nature and he had this vivid, joyous, colorful person who drank up the nectar of life's sweet pleasures and 
free from any responsibility or cares or concern for the welfare of others. And when war broke out in 1202 between the city-states of Assisi and Perugia, Francis caught up in the fever pitch of war. He wanted to show his, 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 you know, he wanted to be in the glory of it and become a knight and the chivalry and the sense of duty to his native city and the opportunity to prove his courage in the face of battle. And Francis was one of the first to take up arms. And after all was said and done, Perugia defeated Assisi in the war and Francis, a lot of people don't know this, uh, was captured by the enemies and taken prisoner. Now, fortunately for us, he wasn't killed, but he was held for a high ransom and kept in a dark, damp dungeon for almost a year. Francis survived beatings, torture, and he lived in perpetual darkness uh, for almost a year. And he endured the horrors and trials of, of being a prisoner of war. And he caught a severe case of malaria and was forced to turn inward to find the stamina and the courage to continue on. And in that dark, rodent-infested chamber that was his prison cell, Francis examined his life, only to discover the pointlessness and meaninglessness of it all. And yet that year in, in that, as a prisoner of war changed him. The family cloth business, the life of a playboy, the delusions of the glory of, his, of war had all disappointed this young man. And when the ransom was finally paid, the young Francis was not the same man. He, like many veterans today, when they come home, like Francis did, he returned to a place that felt very alien to him, even though it was his ancestral home. Now, the people of Assisi had virtually stayed the same. He had not. And that is such a typical thing for a veteran to feel, that everybody has stayed the same. There's, I've changed. And those invisible wounds that he carried from his experiences in the war would eventually compel Francis to seek out a deeper meaning of life beyond appearances, a quest that would ultimately transform him into one of the greatest spiritual warriors for peace. Now, he was one of my heroes. When I got confirmed in the Catholic Church, Francis was the name that I took. Uh, I just loved what uh, Francis of Assisi was all about. He was a mystic. You know, he talked about things that were above just, it wasn't just about being a Catholic. It was about loving all of life. And his kindliness, his sincerity, his genuineness, his simplicity, his authentic devotion to Christ-like principles, and his purity of, and commitment to, uh, to serving a higher cause, to serving God. Francis loved everybody. He loved the trees. He loved the flowers. He loved the plants. He loved the animals. He implored that we set aside our greed, our anger, our hatred, and build in, instead a society where we truly loved one another as uh, our brother. And he exemplified that supreme unconditional love. And he served the poor, he served the needy, he served the sick. And he had a, a purity of heart that was untainted by the avariceness, the lust for power and greed, the violence and selfishness of his time. And as a young man, I, I, had, you know, I didn't know all this stuff about uh, St. Francis. When I picked his name, uh, I had no clue that he was also a veteran. And when I, when I suffered from my moral trauma and, uh, and, the, and the trauma that, and the moral injury that I experienced, you know, I, I disavowed God. I, I turned my, my, my whole life, I, I became uh, pretty much an agnostic or an atheist. And uh, it wasn't until I reached my crisis point that I turned back and, and became connected back to Francis and realized our, our intimate connection that we both, we both shared. So Francis um, was alienated, isolated, he was withdrawn. <clears throat> he was, uh, his father, Pietro, wanted him to take over the mercantile business. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. He was aimless, he was wandering around uh, the countryside, immersing himself into nature. And then he came upon this dilapidated church, and that's when he heard the voice of uh, Jesus and said to him, uh, Francis, rebuild my church. And so he decided to repair this little church and built it back up again from the stones. He, he sold some of his father's clothes. He stole them in order to uh, purchase the tools and the mortar for the building. <clears throat> and his father, his father got very upset. He was in a rage over all this stuff. He couldn't understand what was happening with his son. His son was singing and preaching in, in, the, in the center of Assisi and making a fool of himself. 
and Pietro decided that he wanted to disown his 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 the, his son, to disown Francis. That he was a disgrace to him, disgrace to the family name, and he declared in front of the bishop and the whole city that he, Francis was no longer his son. And all eyes turned towards Francis to see what he was going to do next. And Francis was really dressed beautifully. You know, he had the, the, those beautiful uh, cl uh, clothes that they had at that time. And he moved towards the center. And before anyone could stop him, he disrobed all of his clothes. Francis, in that moment, renounced his allegiance to his father in front of all of Assisi. And he was standing naked there before the entire world. And this gesture symbolized his renouncement of this commercial, greedy, violent, selfish, warmongering world of his earthly father. And he was no longer going to be defined or identified as the heir to a mercantile legacy, uh, which deified money and power above love and compassion and social justice for other people, for the poor, the sick, and the needy. And from that moment on, he would serve a higher cause. And devoting his life to these principles of perfect patience, poverty, simplicity, chastity, and love. Now, when we examine the life of St. Francis, we discover that there is a path, here's a path to uh, becoming a peaceful warrior. It's just one path. And all warriors can relate to this. It follows the same hero's journey articulated by the late Joseph Campbell. We hear the call to glory. We heard the call to serve to our duty and honor in defending the people of our nation. We're confronted with the terror, the horror, and the brutalities that we see in war, which shatters our innocence and covers us up with the sins of immortal crimes. And consequently, we lose our connection, <clears throat> excuse me, to the sanctity of life. And we're filled with all this grief and this rage and this despair and total hopelessness as we're trapped in this underworld. And we are disillusioned by the entrapments of the world, commercialism, our, our love of war, the rage against those who profit off the deaths of innocent and our brothers and sisters, uh, the frustration over what war does to people and the public's blindness to the truth, the moral outrage at the avariciousness, the lust, and the perpetration by the powerful to control the hearts and minds of people through distortions and lies and the exasperation felt by the petty trivialities of what people are concerned about, what they cling to in their daily, day-to-day -day lives. They don't know how precious life is. And so these are some of the truths that warriors have to face and what they're looking at and walking around aimlessly trying to find that. And it can be a very lonely odyssey that a lot of, that a lot of veterans go through. And usually there are a lot of tests and obstacles that veterans have to face when they come home. And, it's, and it can, without any kind of guidance, it can lead to, um, you know, teetering on the edge of their own existence. What happens is, is our initiation is not done. We've got to complete that. We've got to identify, we've got to integrate, we've got to assimilate those characteristics of the warrior archetype with the virtues and values of those sacred principles. And we've got to have that clarity of thinking and discernment, that proper aggressiveness in maintaining peace and concord and our ability to evaluate circumstances in the moment and combine that with courage and fearlessness and an unconquerable spirit uh, with the recognition of the interconnectedness of all of life. And now science is proving this. If you just do a little research into quantum physics, you'll notice, you'll notice that everything is interconnected and the discoveries there that are being made are really profound truths. And, uh, and above all, peaceful warriors are loyal to a cause greater than themselves the right for every human being to live in this world with peace and justice and harmony. And even if you don't believe in God, you can understand this. And you can fact that you can establish a sense of compassion for every person's right to exist uh, while doing your duty. And this can be accomplished. How do we do this? How do we, how do we, how do we enact this? We, this can be accomplished by directing that energy to preserving, protecting, and honoring all life. And through those cultivation of those moral and ethical virtues of courage and kindness and benevolence, fortitude, selfless service, and, re and uh, caring for the plight of others, channel channeling that warrior energy towards restitution, reconciliation, and rebuilding efforts for those war-torn countries where those memories still haunt the people, a commitment of all nations to put down the sword of Ares and pick up the, the shield of Athena using war only as a last resort when all other means have been exhausted 
and there is a definite verifiable threat to the lives of the citizens of the country. And most importantly, the cause must be noble and just. There's no question we must stand up to evil. And lastly, we can teach others, even our enemies, how to love one another because when we understand the preciousness and fragility of life, uh, we can learn to be able to live together in this world. And we do this in small ways every day. For example, we end extend a hand of truce rather than challenging a person to fight. We engage the community and build things together. We enact <clears throat> and participate in cross-cultural activities to learn more about each other. We put down our arms and demand constructive, peaceful solutions to our collective problems. And we cultivate the mindset of working together rather than against each other for the common good. All these and more are practical expressions of brotherly love elder warriors can embrace and inaugurate in the years to come. And you don't have to be a monk or a priest or a rabbi or a guru or become like someone like St. Francis uh, and become celibate and renounce all the, the pleasures of life to become an elder warrior and a peaceful warrior. What is necessary is to understand and to take the passion that St. Francis had for all of life, a life so dear to his heart and make it so dear to our hearts, and that we wish for all peoples all over the world to share in the joy and rapture of the supreme ecstasy we call existence. Now, I want to uh, introduce to you one of the most uh, incredible men I've actually had the privilege to meet. He, uh, I met uh, Dr. Brooke uh, this summer at the Soldiers Heart Institute, uh, where we taught uh, for a, a wonderful gathering of people. And uh, I had some, a chance to sit down with him and talk to him about his experiences, and he made an incredible presentation. And I'm just so honored that he's here to be uh, on this show. Uh, Dr. Roger Brook is going to help us to dive even deeper into this understanding <clears throat> into the veterans' homecoming. He is a professor of psychology at Duquesne University, where he is also a director of the Military Psychological Services. He is a board-certified clinical psychologist and is the current residing president of Soldier's Heart. Dr. Brooke, thank you for joining us today here on the council. Hi, thank you for having me, and please call me Roger. You know, I was a private Brooke, so I, I'm very happy in my lowly, lowly lot in life. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, 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 you may think I was a, a lowly lot in life, but I, you know, when I, we had an opportunity out uh, there in uh, in Saratoga Springs to be able to sit together and have a wonderful uh, evening after uh, one of the day's presentations, and I just found uh, you to be one of the most uh, uh, incredible and thoughtful, wise men that I had ever had the privilege to meet, and. Uh, I just would love for you to be able to share a little bit about your background and how you became uh, and what motivated you to become a, a, a psychologist. Sir. I shall. Do you mind if I start where you ended off with St. Francis? Because there's a great story, which is an, your story is a segue. Your account of St. Francis is a segue into our further conversation, which is about him as a veteran warrior and not just as a saint. Mm. You... Some of your viewers might know that even in the early years of St. Francis, a legend grew up that uh, there was a wolf that had become a man-eater and was eating people in the town of Gubbio. And the villagers were going to go out and form a posse to go and kill the wolf. And St. Francis said, no, you don't need to do that. I can, I've tamed the wolf, or I can go out and tame this wolf. You don't need to kill it. Mm. And that is, in fact, what, what St. Francis did. He went to the wolf and he said, you've got to stop eating people. We'll feed you uh, pizza or whatever the heck they fed him. But we'll feed, we'll feed you and you've got to stop eating people. And they made a deal. What I think is so... Um, inspiring about the story is is that if we think of what the wolf is in European mythology, mm. the the wolf was a placeholder for everything that was evil, malevolent, unhuman or inhuman, dangerous, and vile. 
the, what the wolf was in European mythology is what our veterans now call the beast. Mm. And I like to think that uh, St. Francis was a- able to tame the wolf because he had met the beast. Mm-hmm. And therefore, his ability to tame the wolf and that social function of taming the wolf that could tear to pieces a a community, that social function was not just because of his his line to to God or the sacred, but also because he was a veteran. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an important part, too. You know, it's that beast within that uh, every veteran has uh, has to deal with, has to face. Yeah. uh, you know, it is. We, if we're not uh, if we're not uh, making friends with the beast and understanding and taming that wolf within us, uh, it will propel us. It will. It, it becomes a propellant, and it drives and it excites and uh, it just takes us something outside of us to trigger that. And if we're not being able to tame that within us, I think that's such a wonderful metaphor uh, to put our own darkness on the cross. Uh, for another example, if we're, since we're uh, we're here in the the Christian terminology, uh, that it can consume us and overwhelm us when we come back home. Is it, uh, is it something that drove you to becoming a psychologist, uh, Roger? Oh, I, I think that most of us who became psychologists, particularly psychotherapists, find that uh, our motivations and origins reach into obscurity. Mm. Many of us will admit that we started tra- our training when we were about three. <laughs> <laughs> What I will say is that I've always been drawn to finding words for the unspeakable, and I've been drawn to, uh, I've always had a kind of an empathy and a sort of a, I'm I'm drawn to to the edges of human experience and of suffering. Well, you were in the military, right? When you were, you were from South Africa. And you were in the service uh, there, so you certainly have uh, a prime experience of the whole journey that a veteran has to go through. So you, could you just talk a little bit about your, your military experience there in South Africa? I mean, you've said some amazing stories with me. Well, I think the, the brief version is that uh, as, a, as a white, as a young white man finishing high school, I, I was simply drafted. There was a 100% draft for young white men mm-hmm. leaving high school and you went off and joined the army and you didn't think much about it. I uh, volunteered for uh, training in one parachute battalion, uh, partly to impress my girlfriend, which it didn't, um, <laughs> and partly because of the challenge. And it, I do have... I did have the advantage... Um, <laughs> of having served in an extraordinarily elite unit. Uh, I think the other thing that I... So I understand military culture. I'm not a combat veteran. Most of the war in Angola and so on happened after I had left the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not a combat veteran, but I did the training and I served in a unit that, in fact, saw a lot of combat after I'd left it. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand military culture. And it left its mark on my life. In fact, a couple of years ago, I phoned an old sergeant of mine, a sergeant, uh, he was known as Snakes, Sergeant Snakes Snayman. And uh, it was something of an impulse, but I found his phone number and I said to him that there was something I wanted to say. When he answered the phone, I will say I recognized that voice and it still made me go cold. (laughs) (laughs) But I told him that there, that I didn't think of him every day, but that there hadn't been a day in my life when he was not on the horizon of my world as, a, as an example and as a requirement, and that he had made me a better man. Mm-hmm. Um, we, the other thing I'll say about my experience, especially being um, South African, is that I think I experienced a lot of the contradictions that many, particularly Vietnam-era American military folks feel, which is uh, a significant pride in being in a, in a remarkable unit, mm-hmm. but, but also quite conflicted and you know, about the politics and all that sort of thing. And um, so uh, I've sort of been all over the place. Uh, 
you know, I'm a paratrooper. My personal political philosophy is probably based more on Mahatma Gandhi than <laughs> nonviolent action. And, you know, I'm a kind of a liberal and I was a white South African paratrooper. And I'm, I am kind of this massive contradictions, which uh, uh, I do think of myself actually as a patron saint of contradictions. <laughs> Wherever you are, I'm kind of, I'm there too. <laughs> well, I feel the same way. You know, I, 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 that bond that you have with the guys and the gals that you serve in the military with is, there's a certain bond that you have just because, you know, it, it transcends, it goes beyond any kind of politics that you may have. You're willing yep. to sacrifice and give your life for somebody else, for your brother, for your sister, and that's for uh, only a few people uh, around the world. I think it's a very small percentage, maybe 1% of the population who ever really understands what that is and, and that kind of profound love that you have for them. Even if you don't call it that, it's just, it's something really unique. And, uh, you know, you don't have to have any kind of political ideology that uh, defines that. It goes well beyond that. You can uh, associate and understand the, the need and, and for that kind of depth of feeling that you have for your for your brothers and sisters in arms and um and i also am a, a contradiction as well as you i have i understand the uh, the dynamics of one side i understand i'm also more of a leaning more towards mahatma gandhi and and uh, non-violent non aggression only using it when necessary and absolutely necessary um because i understand how you know just from being on this side how it how what it, what the cost is on the other end what the cost is to the souls of the people who come back and how detrimental it is, how it ripples across families and generations and cultures. And if we're not addressing those things, these things perpetuate and continue on generation after generation. Charlie, what, what, I, what I think uh, your viewers might be interested in is, uh, is the question of what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. and uh, those so-called invisible wounds of war. One of the, one of the uh, sort of myths out there in, in a negative sense of myths is that PTSD is a sort of a, a new phenomenon and it's because people are soft or something and uh, it's simply not true. The, the psychological wounds of war that we now call PTSD have been named and ritually addressed in all traditional warrior cultures around the world and through history. The earliest account that I could find was on, from the Indian subcontinent in the ancient uh, script, the, the Mahabharata, which is over 5,000 years old and describes how the hero Jayadratha lost his moral bearings uh, that he raped a prince, he kidnapped and raped a princess, and the gods were displeased and uh, killed him. Um, we find the psychological wounds of war running through the old, what we Christians call the Old Testament. The Book of Samuel is 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 a, a litany of post-traumatic misery. The life of Saul, for example, it's described how. Um, uh, a dark and evil spirit descended on him. He became paranoid, murderous, uh, depressed, and he ended in suicide. Uh, when his son, Jonathan, tried to persuade him that David was a loyal servant, he nearly had Jonathan killed. And 85 priests who once went to, Samuel, to Saul to represent David, he had them executed. Uh, the, his life was a mess, and uh, David's was traumatized as well. The, the Lakota Sioux called these wounds the Nagina Payape, which translates as the spirits have left him, describing the, that experience of feeling numb and vaguely depersonalized and cut off from the world, uh, zombie-like, that so many veterans struggle with. And then across the world in, in South Africa, the Koza called it the Kaneni, which is a particular kind of warrior's insight into what was described as the shadow that follows you around and never lets you forget what you've done. Um, one of the problems of the diagnosis of PTSD for combat veterans is that it looks at what is sort of the physiological arousal and flashbacks and so on that is that is common to all sorts of PTSD from motor vehicle accidents to tsunamis and tornadoes and so on. 
And the problem with looking at what is similar is that it forgets and ignore, admits what is different and is essential about the deployment or the combat veterans suffering, mm -hmm. which is what we are now starting at last to call moral injury, discovering this ancient truth that the, the wounds of combat are pr primarily moral and spiritual. The term that you and I like so much was the, the American Civil War term, soldier's heart. And we like it because it points directly to that moral and spiritual center of our lives. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say, by the way, the other thing I would say is that when we understand um, combat PTSD, as a human universal and not as a psychiatric illness, then that itself, that it fundamental reframing is inherently transformative mm -hmm. because in all, all those traditional warrior cultures, the experience of combat and its so-called, what we call its trauma, was mm -hmm. understood as an initiation mm -hmm. onto a pathway of moral and spiritual development through the lifespan, which mm -hmm. was known as the warrior's path and was ritually endorsed and sanctioned and honored by by the local community so if we re do that reframing with our veterans they immediately are given a sense of dignity right. that their suffering was shared with george washington mm -hmm. and odysseus who took 10 years to get back from the war but and his family didn't recognize him you know and sitting bull whose primary role was as a healer for his veteran his warriors so we under, we, the, the, the experience immediately has dignity. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it has developmental direction. Mm -hmm. One of the problems of the diagnosis of PTSD is not just the stigma for the individual concerned who's now told he has a psychiatric illness with all the medical assumptions that go along with that, but it also completely marginalizes the, the person's family and local community because mm -hmm. they're not so-called mental health professionals who are trained to deal with what has now been in quotes called a mental illness mm -hmm. so they the family becomes uncertain of their roles mm -hmm. whereas if they don't if we take it out of the language of mental illness and understand it as an initiatory human universal mm -hmm. then the family and the local community and pastors and so on can all be empowered to uh, help bring the veteran home why do you think that was? <clears throat> I mean, it has happened that way where they've actually taken, and you've articulated so beautifully this whole passage, this history, this connection to this universal wound. It's, an, it's a universe. All these cultures from all these different civilizations have expressed it, have uh, identified it. Uh, you can see it in the Bible. You can see it in the Mahabharata and all these other. You can uh, read about it in in, in letters uh, from the Civil War era, and you can hear the. I mean, all these different types uh, of this soldier's heart, of this uh, deep wound that people feel, and yet somehow, some way, it got categorized and isolated into just this psychiatric diagnosis. That it was just. Uh, I mean, and it does change uh, things to the brain. It does affect it in in in. in and change the way the brain processes it. Why did it just get so isolated into that category and taken away from this universal understanding that uh, the ancestors and others were trying to pass on to us? Well, my answer is, I suppose, a little bit speculative and to do with what we call the sociology of knowledge, mm. which is, I, I guess it was going back to the First World War where shell shock was understood as a as a sort of a medical condition. Um, the rise of science and medicine, uh, materialism and biology, uh, the, the decline of a spiritual understanding of human life, the rise of medicine, mm -hmm. you know, all those are significant factors. And more recently now, of course, we have the massive weight of the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. Right now, the pharmaceutical industry is spending hundreds of millions of dollars pushing for the diagnosis of PTSD to be spread around the world through Africa and its local communities and, and in China and so on. And uh, these are not just medical diagnoses. These are what we call social constructions. These are our societies or, or ways of interpreting um, experience as a, med as a medical condition. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
it's it's largely a marketing issue i have a i have colleagues right now who are very critical of the of the the sort of the what's called the language of trauma uh being marketed to local african communities for example who have been rich successfully dealing with trauma since time immemorial but now instead of their rituals and their understandings being being honored and carrying on uh they're persuaded that those are all sort of superstition and to become modern they need to be scientific and the people who are suffering have a medical condition and it marginalizes the local community and voila we can sell them hundreds of millions of dollars worth of pills wow i'm i'm rather cynical but it's i don't mean to be cynical but that's the truth of it wow wow and i think that's so important for our uh, this audience to hear because many may have not heard that uh, so clearly articulated before uh thank you uh just a quick uh, radio announcement you are listening to this uh fantastic interview with Dr. Roger Brook here on KUHSDenver.com that's KUHSDenver.com we are broadcasting uh, not only here in Colorado but all across the nation and all across the world we are having people tuning in from every continent uh almost uh in, in so many different countries i just want to honor and thank all of you for tuning in and listening to this program the council without you uh the show wouldn't be possible so thank you very very much um roger what is <clears throat> what is the meaning of combat experience and its aftermath in ptsd symptoms is there is there a purpose to it what psychic function oh, what psychic function does it serve for the veteran that's yeah that's really a, what a beautiful question you know i do have this is where my i would have to say that my training in uh in the jungian the, the swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst carl jung the jungian tradition is really helpful that and the psychoanalytic tradition our training in the whole purpose of military training is to enable you to live through experiences competently without fully experiencing them in other words without experiencing with them with the fullness of your humanity in in the middle of a firefight or when all hell breaks loose if you had to experience what's happening with the with what i call the fullness of our humanity you wouldn't be able to function it would be overwhelming and the whole purpose of training is precisely that you can live through that situation competently without experiencing it so that's wonderful but it does mean that that uh later i would say that all ex- all trauma is experienced or lived through twice the first time we live through we live through the situation with a ferocious commitment to mission and team survival which is even beyond one's own survival and then often later when we're at home or when it's safer and we can let our defenses down then these memories and flashbacks and so on start pouring through and i understand this really in the service of the re- the recovery or the reclamation of our of our fuller humanity where we in in these memories and feelings we can experience are you, am i still on live it's got a poor connection there yeah you're still on live okay yep where we can experience for the first time what was lived through without experience originally and i don't know if that made sense if i should repeat that it's that in the in afterwards we are then experiencing for the first time what was lived through without experiencing it fully originally mm-hmm. and we live and we experiencing it for the first time in these memories and flashbacks and so on is in the service of the recovery of the fullness of our humanity mm-hmm. and that can be transformative it often if i can keep going it often has sure. a profoundly ethical dimension For example, I I have worked with so many veterans who have nightmares of the dead. Um or or they are haunted if you like. I'm haunted by faces of of the dead which include the dead enemy or dead children in a combat zone. 
Um, and there's no amount of alcohol or drugs that is ever going to be able to uh, heal from that. But I think that we are we are experiencing the misery of those dead children and and the shock of the, the dead enemy, which I, I, I remember one person said, you know, he... I always remember their faces and they know it's the last second of their lives and it's just haunted by the dead like that. I think that they, the, these images of the dead come back to us because we need to make peace with the dead. In all traditional warrior cultures, making peace with the dead is considered necessary for healing. You know how the Lakota Sioux and the Plains Indians, we used to see them on movies and so on, they'd, they'd kill an elk or something and and then, or a buffalo, and they would pray for the spirit of the buffalo that, and give it thanks. What people don't know is that they used to pray like that uh, and honor the spirit, the the dead enemy as well, so that the dead enemy could go on to the next world. I've had many veterans from these recent wars. Uh, finally, they will often just say, "I wish to these faces of the dead, I wish you well." Um, go to Allah uh, sometimes they will pray for them and in in some way recognize the humanity of the dead including the dead enemy and in doing so there's a strange kind of peace and settling down uh, the nightmares will frequently uh, in fact nearly always stop sometimes there will be particular rituals that they will do like on Memorial Day will plant a tree in say the name of a of a little Vietnamese girl or a little Afghan girl or something like that and and then the veteran will talk to his own daughter or a niece or something and say you know there was this little girl that I knew and she died and let's pray for her mm -hmm. and in this way in making peace with the dead um, there is a very there's a very deep sense of peace sometimes the there's an experience that the that these hauntings these figures that haunt us in our dreams in our nightmares um, are sort of shut, subtly transformed into being more like guardian angels mm -hmm. i was so touched when a man told me that he he had come to pray for this little girl uh, as a kind of to as a kind of an angel who could help him be a better father to his own daughter mm. for example it was it was very touching oh, wow. I, you know that's um reconnecting <clears throat> to our own sense of humanity after those kinds of experiences and to make peace with the dead to ritualize these are things that uh, connect us to a wider wider perspective a wider understanding of the interconnectedness and sacredness of all life and all things that need to be valued and honored and, 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 and brought back into the, to sacred union, brought back into a balance. You know, the ancient Greeks used to also honor their dead as well and honor the dead of the people who actually, after they fought, you know, after the battles of Troy, for example, they would, uh, you know, give days off so that they could bury their dead and memorialize them and honor those who fought on the on the field of can i interrupt there is sure yeah you know the here's a nice here's an interesting lesson from the plaza of south africa the plaza used to say that the warrior's soul is left on the battlefield and that his own soul will not be returned to him until he has made peace with the dead yeah. i was reminded of a of a veteran i met who well, I remember reading about a veteran, who, a Vietnam veteran, who went to the Vietnam War to try and find his name. He wondered if he had been killed in Vietnam and simply hadn't realized it yet after all these years. And I remember a young veteran from Afghanistan who wondered if he had been killed in Afghanistan and hadn't realized it yet. And uh, a psychiatrist had thought that this sounded like he was depressed and gave him an antidepressant, but it didn't help. And I thought of the Kosa and how the Kosa would understand it completely. Of course, he thinks he's, he's still on the battlefield, and that's because he hasn't made peace with the dead. And uh, for the Kosa, when you, when you pray for the dead, including the enemy dead, then the ancestors, who are the carriers of the moral order of the world as a, as a sort of a cosmo, cosmos rather than as a chaos, 
the ancestors as the carriers of this world as a moral order will then be pleased that the moral order has been put together again at which point they will allow the souls of the veterans to be returned to them so that they can take their souls back into the civilian community and there are rituals there that the civilian community then participates in uh, which further takes the the brings the veteran home and that is to do with storytelling uh, do you want me to say something about that no, i'd love for you yeah this is fantastic wow okay amazing. um there's some wonderful writing about uh, storytelling and veterans, including in Jonathan Shea's work and Ed Tex and so on. I think that storytelling is, is uh, very interesting. We often come back from service or from combat with a kind of collage of images that don't really make much sense in terms of a story. And to put them into words and to tell a story... Mm-hmm. Is, is actually to speak, especially to civilians, is to put one's experience into one's mother tongue. And the mother tongue, where we then describe our experience and we say this was beautiful and this was funny and this was frightening and mm-hmm. courageous and cowardly and that was betrayal mm-hmm. and this was duty and this was painful. Mm-hmm. All this language is a language that puts the language of our mother tongue and the language of our community in an absolutely immediate way brings our experience home. Mm-hmm. It puts our experience back together in a world as a, as a fabric of stories and images and language. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, uh, to go back to the Kosa, some of your viewers might remember when South Africa had its transformation and Nelson Mandela became president. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the years after the end of apartheid, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was founded by Bishop Tutu, uh, was a process, it was a a commission in which people would go to the commission and they would talk about what they had done, where they had worked for the security forces or other various splinter groups and so on, where they had killed people and buried them. Mm -hmm. And they would confess to this community to this commission but they would also do so in front of the families of those that they had killed I bet that it, was was extra- powerful. It, it was an extraordinary <coughs> achievement yeah. now many people think that the commission was flawed and that there were you know think justice wasn't completely served but it did have a remarkable social function and what not many people realize is how this extraordinary cultural phenomenon came out of the a tradition of the ukubula, mm-hmm. or at least it was consistent with this tradition of the ukubula, which was the process in which warriors would tell their stories, that they would mm-hmm. confess their sins, if you like, mm-hmm. to the local community. And the local community's task was to, was to stay present and to bear witness, mm-hmm. uh, no matter how painful it was. And in this way, they would take responsibility for the violence that had been done it, in its name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's such an important Profound, thing. Profoundly yeah. healing. Yeah. Well, and, it, and then that whole idea of being able to share stories within the communities, within the families, when these stories are not shared, there is an immediate, there's a disconnect from that process. You know, these are universal patterns. These are archetypal patterns. You know, the archetype of, of war and the archetype of betrayal, the archetype of of desertion, all these things that happen and in, in, in having to fight in the in battle and to, and all the things that are that are confronted on the battlefield, these are, are universal patterns. And when they're not shared into the greater context of the family and the community in a story that helps people to understand what they did and why they did it and to be able to share those burdens with them so they're not having to carry it all on their own, that's one of the primary reasons I think that the suicide rate within veterans is so high right now is because they haven't been able to have that sense of community and returning into that community to serve as an, as an elder, to share their stories in a meaningful way that gives the, it gives the people a deeper understanding of, of, of what war does and what war can do and what they did so that they're not having to shoulder all these um, you know, immortal crimes on their shoulders uh, at the expense and, uh, of their own lives and, and for everybody else. And I think it's, you know, we don't do that in our society as much. You know, some of the stories that I heard 
uh, when my father shared some of his stories to me, uh, it was helped. There was an immediate bonding that happened. You understand there's a there's a there's a, a, a immense love that you have for this person and what they did and you understand oh my gosh and you and there's a sense of dignity that you feel for this person you carry it you 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 it it, it gets passed down in a, in a healthy way through the generations you're 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 able to hold that space in a, in a way that's uh, dignified and filled with respect and admiration and what when these veterans don't get to share it we don't uh, we don't grow we just keep we we we, we allow them to suffer by themselves and that's not right one of the things that i i think is quite interesting is i'm very aware of is that when a veteran has a civilian therapist such as we do in our clinic mm -hmm. at duquesne university that there is something much more meaningful happening than merely what our society is called counseling or psychotherapy that the that this process by which a civilian therapist is is bearing witness to the the, the tale and the stories of uh, the veterans uh, is participating in this ancient archetypal ritual mm -hmm. uh, in which the civilian communities are, are bringing the veterans home through storytelling. That the private grief has to be held in some kind of communal mourning. One of the things about it in the family, by the way, is that then it becomes mm -hmm. part of the family's legacy. Mm. You know, the, yeah, I think of how blessed I was to have a father who was an infantry officer in Italy in World War II, have a father who always was very open to me in age-appropriate age ways about his experience in Italy, um, its sadness and triumph and prides and joys and and uh, and sorrow his b younger brother was buried there and so on mm -hmm. i always knew my father and from my father's point of view the memory of that time and of his sergeant richie and his younger his wonderful younger brother and other people there that those memories got passed on to the ne the next generation in a way that honors them mm -hmm. and then i think of his brother who was the silent type and his oldest son, my cousin, has had this feeling of never knowing his father. There's again another traditional story to tell you, if I may. Sure. The Shangan of South Africa used to say that when a man, when a man killed another man, he had to, even in battle, he had to build a, an, a, a hut on the edge of his own village in that man's name and then look after it. And here's the real kicker, is that when the man's daughter got to marrying age she was then married to the spirit of the dead enemy mm. and when i was told that by a shangan guide uh, several years ago i was just struck how profoundly psychologically true that was i think of all those daughters who who are trying to make sense of why they are cut off from their fathers or what's wrong in their relationships they wonder their fathers might love them deeply, but are, the, are withdrawn and blunted and unavailable. And the daughters are so preoccupied with trying to make the relationship better that they're unable to live their own lives. In the Shangan metaphor, they are in effect married to the spirit of the dead. And uh, for the Shangan, if the daughter then falls in love and wants to live her own life, her father and she and maybe others in the community will do a ritual in which they will ask the dead to release her so that she's able to live her own life. And I think of how that kind of transformation is worked in the ordinary processes of a skillful psychotherapy too, mm -hmm. where we help veterans and their daughters or veterans and families or just sometimes working with the daughters themselves. Mm -hmm. um, find a way to to recognize their father's preoccupation with the dead doesn't have to have to uh, dominate their own lives that's a, that's incredible my gosh wow Whew. you know I, and not having these rituals and not having these ceremonies is such a detriment and i think there's uh, there's a, a, a really significant impact that happens when we remove these ancient traditions outside of what we're doing on, on, in our own modern world and just reduce PTSD to a psychiatric diagnosis. 
and just leaving it to the, it's a something an issue with the brain which it is but it, and you're just treating it as something that is a, a chemical imbalance or a, a medical imbalance what is what are some of these unintended consequences that happen when we just leave PTSD as a psychiatric diagnosis isn't there yeah, a problem think, with that uh, Charlie well there absolutely is but before I go further I really do want to say, say I really I don't do not want to be misled Mm-hmm. There is a there is clearly a role for psychiatry. There's yes. clearly a role for medication, and I would never advise somebody to to sort of stop their meds uh, or something you know like that uh, right. without it being very carefully controlled and discussed with appropriate professionals. Um, I I'm not professionally irresponsible and so on. All I am saying is that if we limit our understanding to the medical model, yeah. then then we are we are locked into a perspective that doesn't have much room for the notion of of post post traumatic growth, mm. uh, and it also that it misses the the uh, the moral and spiritual calling and possibilities that are in in uh, so called PTSD. Mm-hmm. In terms of your question, the biggest the primary consequence is that it marginalizes the family and the local community. Because they're not so-called mental health professionals, uh, they feel as though they're not qualified to to work with so-called PTSD, which they've now uh, had taken away from them mm-hmm. by being interpreted as a psychiatric condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's that marginalisation. But of course, we can add to it the awful stigma on on the veteran uh, regarding mental illness and so on as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you're right, you know, and, I, and I, I didn't mean to uh, misinterpret you or anything. There is a role for psychiatry. There is a role for meds. There is a role for counseling in, in, in the, the, the cognitive behavioral therapy modality and the exposure therapy and, and dialectical and all those things. They all have a role to play. It's just when we detach it and no longer uh, integrate these other aspects of what it means to be human, a full, you know, Besser, would, Besser Van der Kolk says we have to look at mind, body, and, and, and brain. It's got to be encompassing the entire human being, not just limiting it to just yeah. mental function. I, w- I would advise, if, if uh, some of your listeners are combat veterans, I would advise them... Uh, there are psychotherapists in the in the various veterans' administrations and clinics and uh, psychologists and social workers who are trained psychotherapists in private practice. There are some ministers and priests. There are, there are all sorts of people who, who can help. Um, what, if you're with somebody that it's not helping, that's probably kind of because you're not a good fit for what that person is having to offer. And I would say, look for somebody else. Mm-hmm. There are there are people, and most of all, what you want is somebody who's not afraid to go where you need to go, mm-hmm. who's not afraid of you, who's not afraid of horror. Yeah. You've got to be able to stand in that. You've got who's to not afraid of, who's, who's not, not afraid of, not, who's not afraid of mind-bending grief. Yes. And that's such an important thing, too, is this understanding of grief uh, yeah. and being able to allow yourself to grieve in those things and understanding the difference between grieving and mourning. Uh, yep. Can you explain a little bit about that? Because, and it's right, you have to be with somebody who will not flinch, who will not flinch at that horror and allow that to be able to tap into that that grief and mourning. Could you go through that just a little bit? Well, I- the, ter- the, the basic distinction is that we think of grief as a private experiential process, mm-hmm. whereas mourning is something that is, is communally held. So, so private grief is ritually and communally held in public mourning. Mm-hmm. And we do that on, on uh, Memorial Day, and uh, we used to do it on what used to be called Armistice Day and mm-hmm. is now Veterans Day. Mm-hmm. But there are other occasions as well. Um, one of the things that I will say about grief is, is it's interesting to ask, what is the purpose of grief? Mm-hmm. And I think that in grief, it is the most original way in which we remember the dead. Mm-hmm. And remembering the dead, which we always do by remembering them at their best, is a way of honoring them. And as the, as the years go by, it is our way of honoring our ancestors. Mm-hmm. It is also a way of affirming the fundamental 
and organizing values of our own lives so that when I remember somebody's courage and loyalty and friendliness, I'm, that is remembering and honoring the person I, I grieve, but it is also affirming those values in the conduct of my own life, mm -hmm. which is why so many veterans will have this feeling that they want to live a life that is worthy of their dead buddies' continued presence in their memories and dreams. That was so beautifully portrayed at the end of Saving Private Ryan, by the way, where Private Ryan looks over the graves in France, over the cemetery in France, and wants to feel reassured that he lived a life that was worthy of their sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just saying that, just bringing that up brings... Uh, you know, my, my throat starts to get a little choked up there, uh, Roger, because <laughs> it is, yeah. it's so true. Um, Roger, we've only we're got a few minutes we're left. We're out of time, aren't we? No, almost. We just got to, if you want to, if we could do, we'll go over just a couple minutes and go over just some last questions. I'd love for you to elaborate just a little bit about how you work with dreams with veterans and, and because you, you incorporate both the the clinical work and dream work, and then just the the, the event that you're going to have at Duquesne on Friday, November 2nd. I know you've got a big veteran event that's there and for people on the East Coast who are listening to the show who might want to attend. I know that's the, uh, such a, a great event that you have about to come up. And then the last question uh, that I would have is uh, one bit of wisdom. I ask all my guests, one, what one bit of wisdom could you give to uh, to this audience to carry forth in their life? The, quest the question of dreams uh, is too complex to answer very briefly, but let me say that, that I think that dreams, particularly recurring nightmares of the dead, mm -hmm. you, you can help, but you can help with them put those nightmares to sleep, but you do need to be with somebody who really knows what he or she is doing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, most of the literature out there in the mainstream uh, military kind of psychology literature has no access to this, and we've, they've forgotten the fundamental lesson going back to Freud and Jung, which is that dreams have meaning. And I started writing about this. I have published uh, an essay which can be found on my website, which actually touches on this, and I'm writing about it right now. Uh, secondly, on the 2nd of November, we are having a one-day conference at Duquesne University called Moral Injury and the Role of Community in the Veterans' Homecoming. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking about uh, various aspects of the community, including military sexual trauma in the community of women and the religious community, the legal community and the veterans' court, and lessons from around the world and local communities around the world. It is free for veterans and their spouses. It is thanks to a grant from the Greer Foundation and from Staunton Farm. So it should be a really fine conference at Duquesne University. And finally, wisdom. I, 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 had a f I was fr afraid you might ask me that question. <laughs> I can't think of anybody who's somewhat less wise than me. But, I beg to uh, differ. <laughs> but, but I suppose I would say that it's something about... Uh, there's a, I think it was a Sufi saying, which is that God will break your heart over and over and over again until it, until it stays open. Oh, wow. Because the wounded heart can either be a place that is frozen with scar tissue and blunts us and cuts us off from the world, or that wounded heart can be an, a place of opening in which we are poured into the world. Wow. I'll tell you what, I think that's one of the greatest pieces of advice I've had yet on this show. Are you kidding, Roger? That's amazing. Absolutely well, amazing. Well, I'm also a grumpy old fellow. I don't always live up to it, hey? <laughs> <laughs> Roger, Dr. Brooke, thank you so much for being here on this show with us today. I and thanks to so you, Charlie, honored. and thanks to all your listeners for listening to us. God oh. bless. God bless. Yes, thank you, Roger. Thank you, uh, everyone, for tuning in to the show and the council today. Here on KUHSDenver.com, KUHSDenver.com, you are hearing the best music, best programs, broadcasting all around the world uh, and uh, giving you the best shows. Uh, they're wonderful people here. I can't thank KUHS Denver enough for allowing me to have this show and to be able to share this out with all of you. And without you, the show wouldn't be possible. 
Uh, thank you, folks, for tuning in. We are done for today. Uh, we will be back in a couple weeks. Bye-bye. And I just wanted to say that the council is adjourned. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. And may you all be whole. God bless. Bye-bye. Are you still there, Charlie? Just a sec, just a sec.